Okay, you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter number 5. And we've been in a study looking at the kings of Israel and learning from their uh, successes and their failures. And I've said several times through this study that uh, looking at the kings is good for us as Christians, not that we are kings, but we are representatives of God in the world which we live in. And the principles that apply to these kings are principles that we can apply to our lives as well. And uh, kind of an overarching theme of all of the kings is that whenever they are trusting God and they were uh, following godly principles or they're following God's word, uh, God is able to bless that. God is able to uh, use them for good, able to make an impact on the people around and the people who they uh, are in contact with benefits from their godly walk. But also, whenever they reject God, whenever they reject the things of God, then it has negative, a negative impact on them. It has a negative impact on the people around them, on any people who uh, they may be leading or affecting in their lives. And so we saw that uh, uh, King Saul was a was likened to a carnal Christian. Uh, from the beginning to the end, he did what pleased King Saul. And he may have had a bright spot or two, but it wasn't very bright. But for the most part, he was just answering the plea of the people of Israel. They wanted the man who they wanted. And they wanted someone who was like the kings around them, and that's what they got. They got a carnal, a, a worldly king. And David inherited the kingdom from that mess, and David spent a good part of uh, the beginning of his kingdom kind of cleaning up the mess that Saul made of uh, winning victories over the uh, the battles that Saul had lost and reclaiming land that he had lost and uh, turning the people back to the God who they have been away from for a long time. And so anyway, David is a picture of what should be a normal Christian. Uh, he's not perfect by any means. He messes up. He sins. He fails, but he returns to God. He uh, repents and he uses these Mistakes to, uh, I guess, correct his path. And so whenever he'd mess up, he'd repent, he'd go back to God, and he would learn from them. And he faced the consequences, because sin always has consequence. But God was able to even turn the consequences toward good. And this may be kind of overlapping what we're going to be looking at tonight a little bit. But two of David's biggest failures, God used in mighty ways. What would have been two of David's biggest failures? Okay, Bathsheba would be the biggest one we think of, right? Not me. What would be the other one? We didn't really cover it whenever we were going through David's life. Okay, the census of the people. He went through and ordered a census of the people of Israel wanting to know how, basically how large his army was so that he could basically glory in the strength of his kingdom and in the number of men rather than in uh, God. And so those were his two biggest mistakes. And the results of the sin with Bathsheba was he ended up with Solomon, right? Right. And the results of him numbering the people, what did he end up with? That God turned around for good. You want to remember? 
Okay. For, so from uh, him numbering the people, there was a plague that was unleashed by God. There was uh, uh, death amongst the people. The angel of the Lord went through slaying, uh, slaying the people. And he was told to go and purchase the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and offer up an offering there. And it would stay the hand of the Lord so that uh, this plague would be stopped. And so he purchases the floor, uh, the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, which was a raised place. Okay. And it was a raised place. It was the same as Mount Moriah, where Abraham had led uh, Isaac up to offer him up. And it was also the same place that Solomon would use to build the temple. And so out of David's two biggest failures, God brought about the man who would build the temple and the land that the temple would be built on. And so God can even bring good out of our failures. And uh, so that is a blessing to us. And so we've been here lately looking at King Solomon. And I kind of feel bad because a lot of times whenever we look at King Solomon, we look at him favorably. He is the son of David. He is the builder of the temple. He is wise and he is wealthy and all of these different things. But if you look at him from a spiritual perspective, if you look a little bit deeper in what we can learn from him, he's not exactly a, a great example. And I said from the beginning on this that uh, Saul was the carnal Christian, David was the normal Christian, and Solomon is the backsliding Christian. And so Solomon has an easy road at the beginning. David gives him uh, basically the greatest setup. He's got uh, wealth. He's got uh, peace amongst the people. He's got respect amongst the nations that's around him. And he has a kind of a mandate, if you will. Uh, he is chosen by God. He is confirmed by the people. He has power. He has authority. Everything is going great. Not only that, he's got uh, marching orders in a way. Uh, David is handing him the land. He is handing him the blueprints for the temple. He's handing him all of the supplies. David had been amassing all of the spoil of the battles that he had fought and been collecting silver and gold and brass and all these different things to go into the building of the temple. And so he gives Solomon the throne. He gives him this kingdom of great wealth and of great peace. He gives him his uh, first task as king to unite the people uh, in worship under God with the temple. And so Solomon has this, uh, this great opportunity uh, basically just dumped in his lap. Yeah. And I, I've said over and over through this study that David has given him all this, and now the question is, what's he going to do with it? And as is often the case, whenever uh, someone has fought the battles, won the victories, those who inherit them take it for granted. Mm -hmm. And I've likened that to us as Christians is past generations have had to shed blood, had to be martyred, had to take stands, had to be in difficult places, imprisoned, all these different things for us to have the uh, peace that we have today. Mm -hmm. Even in recent times, there has been great battles over... Uh, over theology, over uh, over the truth of God's word and trying to uh, separate from heresy and different things like that just in past generations. And now we are reaping some of the benefits from 
these uh, ones who have fought for the truth, and we have the truth, and we have so much great writings and great preaching and all kinds of things to help clarify so many of the, the things that are often confusing or um, under debate within Scripture. And so we've got so much to clarify that, but then we can easily take it for granted and just kind of go ho-hum through our Christian lives and allow things to slip, allow things to slide. And so with Solomon, he allows a lot of things to slide. He has all these expectations, all the preparation, everything put on him at the very beginning, but he allows things to slide. And so what we looked at last week was a foreshadowing. Uh, whenever we look in chapter number three, the first few verses of that said that Solomon married an Egyptian princess and he made affinity or he had this um, agreement, this treaty, if you will, with the Egyptian king. And so what Solomon is starting to do, instead of relying on God and abiding by God's word, he is breaking God's principles because he wasn't supposed to marry an Egyptian. He wasn't to return to Egypt. But anyway, uh, he is breaking God's word and he is relying on his own abilities. He's relying on his own strength. He's uh, relying on man's principles and man's wisdom rather than relying on God. So he says, if I can make a deal with this king and with that king, then I can enrich myself from these trade agreements and I can have strength and, and power from having political agreements and having their armies to protect and to, to join up with me and things. And so he saw these alliances as a means to enrich and a means to protect, when in reality, God was the one who said, if you will follow me, if you will serve me, then I'm going to see to it that your enemies are defeated. I'm going to see to it that your needs are provided. I will increase you. I will do all of these things if you will follow me. And so he's going off course already. But then, not to make it all bad, uh, whenever God came to him, just after we read about that, God came to him and he gave him uh, an opportunity. He said, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And it's, so it's like the idea of a man walking down the beach and finding a, a, a lamp with a genie in it. You know, rub the lamp, I will give you anything. And so anyway, uh, Solomon considers and he says, I'm extremely young. I'm inexperienced. I was raised in the king's house. I wasn't a man of war. I haven't had to go out and do all of these things. And so I need to be an effective leader. So he asked God for wisdom uh, to know how to lead the people. Okay. And so as we talked about this wisdom, we always questioned Solomon. How could he be so wise and do things so foolish? And the answer that we came to, or that I came to at least, is that just because we know something doesn't mean that we always follow uh, what we know. Too often we allow our flesh or our heart to be our guide rather than the truths that we know, rather than the wisdom of God. And so anyway, that was one thing that we settled on. But not only that, but Solomon specifically asked for uh, a earthly or worldly or a political type of wisdom. He wanted wisdom to be able to govern people. He wanted to know how people worked, how nations worked, 
how they related to one another, how to make decisions, how to utilize these uh, this knowledge that he had in order to govern and rule over the people. And he does that, he, he has that kind of wisdom, but he uses uh, his wisdom that was given him by God, he uses it in a wrong way. And so with that, we find that God gifts us with many different things. He gives us talents and abilities and resources and things, and he gives it to us oftentimes liberally, but he doesn't force us in our use of it. We have the choice. We have a free will of what we're going to do with what God gives us. And so we're very much in Solomon's position. God has given us all these things. What are you going to do with it? And so he gives us our intellect. We can use our brains for God. We can use our brains to amass uh, wealth to ourselves. We can use our brains for the devil to do all kinds of wicked and evil, right? Uh, we can use our wealth for things that please God, or we can also use our uh, wealth for things that destroys our body and destroys those who are around us, right? And so we have a choice in the gifts that God gives us. Even this, uh, I may have used this example last week, but many of the uh, musicians that play secular music today, many of them got started off in church. God gave them a voice. He gave them musical abilities and gave them talents. And rather than using that to glorify God and to uh, encourage and help God's people, they have used it to enrich themselves and to sing the world or the devil's music. And so we have this choice of what we do with what gifts God gives us. And so Solomon got a gift from God. He says, you're going to have wisdom to know how this world operates, how people think, how these kind of things go. And so Solomon, are you going to use this to lead the people to follow me and to make the people of Israel a godly nation that is a testimony to all the world? Or are you going to use this wisdom to amass for yourself fame and wealth and riches and uh, all of these things, reputation and things with the, the nations around you? And Solomon picks the latter. The The dumb thing about this, and maybe I shouldn't use that, that term, but I will. The dumb thing about all of this is that God promised Solomon, whenever Solomon asked for wisdom, he says, because you haven't asked for the life of your enemies, because you haven't asked for great wealth and riches, because you haven't asked for these other things, a long life, he says, I'm going to give these to you as well. So he has a promise from God, just as I gave you wisdom, I'm going to give you the, the life of your enemies. I'm going to give you great wealth. I'm going to give you riches so there will be no man like you in all of the earth. And instead of trusting God to bring about those things that he had promised, Solomon sets out to bring them to himself. He starts in the horse trading business with amassing horses out of Egypt and selling it to the people who used to be his enemies. He starts sending boats and uh, bringing in gold and apes and peacocks. He starts going and just amassing all of these things to himself. Um, he would have been somewhere around 60 to 65. That's how old he was when he died? When he died, yes. Solomon? Yes, why? That's yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I was thinking like 100 and something compared to everybody. Okay, but, okay, you bring out a valid point on this. Whenever God says, I'll give you a long life, it was a conditional promise, wasn't it? Oh, that is very true. Yes. Okay, so let's go back to where he asking this. <laughs> Sorry. 
no, no, it's actually a really good point that we're bringing out. Part of this was conditional, part of it wasn't. So let me look. Um, Yeah. Chapter 3, verse 14. Okay, I hadn't went far enough. Yeah. Okay, yeah, actually I have it underlined. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. Mm -hmm. And we know he didn't keep the statutes. Right. And that's actually part of the judgment that comes against him, that he didn't keep the statutes, so he didn't have the length of days. Now... If you go back up to verse 12, Behold, I have done according to thy words, while I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after, after thee shall arise any like unto thee. I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, mm -hmm. so that uh, there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. So verse 13 wasn't conditional, yeah. but verse 14 was. So the riches and honor, he says, I'm going to give that to you. But the length of life depended on... The length of days depended on how well he adhered to God's principles. Okay, It's similar to uh, the Ten Commandments whenever it says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the earth. If Solomon honored God, God would allow his days to be long on the earth. And so he would have had a lot longer reign, a lot longer kingdom... Maybe some more time to train and prepare Rehoboam if he would have followed God. Okay, so anyway, uh, that was a, a, a nice little side note, a little, little rabbit trail. But as we're looking at Solomon, um, he had all of this wisdom, and he had the choice to make, will I use it to glorify God or will I use it to glorify self? And Solomon used the gift that God had given him to glorify himself rather than God. And we see that, we're going to see that highlighted in what we're looking at tonight. But anyway, rather than him trusting God to bring the honor and riches to himself, uh, Solomon used the wisdom that God had given him to bring the honor and riches to himself and to give, get the life of his enemies, to get peace with the nations around. Uh, he used marriage. Mm -hmm. which was a political thing. Mm -hmm. And so he said, if I go out and marry this woman and that woman, if I'm married to the daughter of that man and the daughter of that priest, or not priest, the daughter of that pharaoh, that king, that uh, patriarch, whatever it is, then I'm going to have honor amongst those people. I'm going to gain wealth from these trade deals. I'm going to gain uh, peace. I'm going to gain power because of all these alliances. And he's relying on that, on worldly wisdom, on his own arm rather than on the arm of God. Well, that's very interesting because whenever you read that, or I read it, I just lump all that in together. Mm -hmm. And then when you said that, I, I was thinking, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, long days would be like 100 and something mm -hmm. compared. Yeah. And then I knew he didn't live that long, but mm -hmm. I didn't know exactly what. But I didn't realize those were two separate Yeah, he didn't live quite as long as David, it doesn't seem like. David would have lived close to 70 and uh, Solomon reigned for 40 years, and he took the throne somewhere between 20 and 25. Okay, so just between the years here and the years in the beginning of, you know, like we've been reading home in Genesis, mm -hmm. there's a huge difference already. Well, the there's years. a huge difference 
uh, if you start looking at the the length of man's days, there's a huge difference at Noah. Okay, that's the difference is after the flood, men's days are a lot shorter. And I hold to the belief that uh, the flood was such a cataclysmic event that it changed the atmosphere. It changed the conditions on the earth. And as a result, it changed the, the length that people would live as well as the creatures as well. I think that's one of the reasons we don't have, and this is really off track but but anyway that's one of the reasons we don't have dinosaurs today is that uh if uh reptiles and amphibians had a length of days that was 10 times what they are they would achieve dinosaur size you know you you think about a crocodile or an alligator if he lived 10 times as long and grew his entire life that thing would be massive so anyway uh how we got to that from solomon um We followed her. Anyway. (laughs) Just to to think when you're reading the the story of these kings and Mm -hmm. and their reigns and all these things, you will really think they won't be younger than 80 to 100. Mm -hmm. It's just only when she asked, and it's struck because I'm like, if I read about David, Solomon, I'm seeing someone mm-hmm. very old. And, yeah. Well, Solomon's yeah. wisdom, you expect him to be, you know, like the yeah, gray like hair the gray and the long hair, beard. Long and beard. Someone in 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. way will have lived. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it surprised, found out he was just as in a young adult man, mm-hmm. lived 60, 65, even 70, with all this history that. Mm-hmm. Uh, follow him around it, it sounds like well I think maybe the the amount of things that they accomplished in their life yeah. or how big a feat it was yeah. you think they had to be older than what they yeah. were yeah. because if you think, think yourself about building the, build, building the, 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 the temple mm-hmm. at that time and that you 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 will have measure how long the temple will have to be built mm-hmm. maybe 10 or years or whatever yeah. depends on temple how, seven yeah whatever how many manpower they have and if you associate those things is marrying this but this you you will just you think you'd have to live yeah, a little longer just to marry seven hundred women wouldn't they not only about Solomon even the other kings or the other mm-hmm. uh, prophets I, I, I haven't even thought about them like uh, who's this the the one in Patmos? John. John. If I don't know how long he lives, but he lived to be probably about 90, 95. Right, yeah, you will. That's how you will assume the history of John. You will just it will give you that sense of this man, this person lives yeah. that mm-hmm. much longer. Right. But even like with uh, with Peter. Yeah. Uh, Peter is told that he's going to live to be an old age. Because remember, whenever Jesus has this conversation with him, you know, mm-hmm. lovest thou me, feed my sheep. Mm-hmm. And he tells him at the end, he said, whenever you were young, you gird yourself and you went wherever you wanted to. When you're old, mm-hmm. uh, someone else will gird you and lead you where you would It's not. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus says, you're going to live to an old age. But by the time John is on Patmos, Peter's been dead for a long time. A long time. Um, and you said- I can't remember offhand how old he was whenever he died. I mean, we've got... 
uh, historians that tell us about when he died, how he's martyred and things. Mm-hmm. But he didn't die a natural death. John's the only one that did. Mm-hmm. And they tried to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So as we're looking at Solomon today, I don't know how much of his uh, building that we're going to be get be able to get through here, but we're going to look at his um, amassing of wealth. And really, I guess the the subject or title of what we're looking at today, I've kind of as we've been studying through the Kings, tried to have a bit of a title each time, whether I've said it or not. But what just kept jumping out to me was never enough. Mm-hmm. For Solomon, never enough. That's the story of Solomon. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's got, look at the wives that he's got. Yeah. And that is Solomon's story is that he was constantly uh, lusting. He was constantly desiring and he was never, ever satisfied. Right. And you look at Ecclesiastes, for instance, uh, written by Solomon. And it is Solomon as an old man. And he has lived a full life, and he has taken the wealth that God has given him and used it in pursuit of some kind of pleasure, some kind of meaning, some kind of joy. He was doing. He was doing basically what um, most people today are doing. They're seeking some sort of meaning, something to make them feel satisfied. In the world that we live in, we have food, we have clothing, we have cars and houses. We have everything that we could possibly need or want. Well, I won't say want. <laughs> everything we could possibly need, yeah. and people are still searching for meaning. Right. They are filling up their time with uh, entertainment and mm-hmm. uh, gadgets and devices and possessions, and, and still it's never enough. Right. And so Solomon tried to find peace and joy and happiness in something using all of his wealth, all of his wisdom, all the resources he had. And Solomon came down to the place where he says, it's all in vain. He says, what good does it for me to be the wisest man on earth when I have the same end as the fool? Mm -hmm. Solomon was one of the first ones, I guess, to say that, uh, you know, the the rich man and the poor man's grave is the same size, you know? And, And now... This is a, a clever antidote of that for the, for him saying that, and uh, obviously he's never seen the pyramids. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, as we uh, look at Solomon here, he is running to excess constantly. Nothing is enough for him, and so as we start uh, in verse number five or chapter five, excuse me. Uh, We are looking at the kings. We're not going through verse by verse. We're not looking at the books. We're looking at the kings. Okay? And so I'm going to kind of skim over uh, these chapters because it deals with him ordering things. It deals with him amassing all of the resources, getting the gold, and telling how much it weighed and how much he had, getting the the labors, the people uh, together, and setting up the the labor plan and all of this for this construction project. And so with that, it's a little bit mundane. It's a little bit boring. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Just to be honest with you. I mean, if you go into it a deeper study, maybe, but that's not our purpose in this right now. Right. So I'm going to start off and reading just a few verses here in chapter five to get us uh, going since we're halfway done already. First um, Kings chapter five, verse one. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon 
for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father, for Hiram was ever a lover of David. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build a house unto the name of the Lord his God, uh, for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I purpose to build an house unto the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son whom I will set upon uh, thy throne in my room, he shall build an house unto my name. So we'll, we'll just stop with that. But Solomon, shortly after he takes the throne, he starts setting an order to build the, ta- the temple. This was the, one of the last wishes of David. This was the, the task that he gave to him. He prepared everything, set it in order. He says, you're going to build the temple. And so Ta- the, excuse me, Hiram, the king of Tyre, hears that David has died, hears that Solomon has become king, and Hiram had been a close friend. Even though he wasn't a Jew, he was a king of a neighboring country. He was a friend of David. And... Uh, it's kind of weird for us to try to process this relationship between David and Hiram and Solomon and Hiram, or at least it is for me. But they are kings of different countries, but they have a good working relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so anyway, whenever Hiram hears about all of this, he sends uh, ambassadors up to David, or excuse me, up to Solomon, says, we heard you become king and everything in place of David. And so Solomon sends back to Hiram, and he says, you know all of this already. You and David's already discussed this. You know he wanted to build a temple. You know God wouldn't allow him to. You know God promised him a son. I'm here on the throne. God has kept his promise, and now I'm going to set to building this temple that God uh, has instructed David, that David wanted to build, but that God instructed him that I would build. And so that sets us off on the start of, of Solomon's building. Yeah. projects okay and so just kind of skipping over here in chapter five uh, he makes a deal with Hiram about bringing in all the timber all the the lumber that needed to be built the cedars out of Lebanon and all of these things and he's amassing all these things uh, starting with verse number 13 he's getting all the laborers together and so Solomon is starting to conscript people. He's going out and he's forcing them into labor. Not slavery, he's paying them in things. But he's saying, we've got this project to build. I am the king. You've got to do what I said. Leave your fields. Come. And he takes basically 2% of Israel's workforce to bring into this temple project. If you go back to where David was numbering the people and how many people there was of fighting age, Solomon conscripts about 2%, 2.5% of those people for this building project. Then on top of that, he brings in a large amount of people who are non-Jews, who they have control over because uh, they have defeated them and they're now tribute, tributaries to them. Okay? And so he's like, okay, all of these uh, Gentiles that are under Solomon's rule, now you have been roped into cutting out stone and uh, cutting down trees and doing all these different things. Not only that, but whenever all the lumber came in, all the trees came in from Lebanon, uh, 
Jerusalem was inland about 50 kilometers. So they were going to float the trees down, and then they were going to take them across land to Jerusalem, 50 kilometers. And so if you think that the building of the pyramids was a big project, (laughs) I mean, this was going throughout the entire region, bringing in the supplies. Mm -hmm. And they were cutting the stone out of the mountain, transporting it to Jerusalem. They were bringing the trees out of Lebanon, crossing the land to bring them into the temple, all of these things, okay? And so anyway, chapter number six, I just want to read the first verse there because it gives us a little bit of information. It says, And it came to pass in the 480th year, after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So 480 years after the Exodus, Mm -hmm. so they were in Egypt for 400 years. They've been out of Egypt for 480 years. So that's the time of the judges. That was the time of Joshua, the time of Moses, the time of Samuel, all those things. Mm -hmm. The judges, Solomon, or not Solomon, Saul and David. Mm -hmm. Okay, 480 years. And basically the 80 years is the reign of Saul and David. So you got 400 years in Egypt, 400 years, they get a king, and then now 80 years they're building the temple. That kind of set everything out? Okay. And so we've got more information about the the size of the temple, how it's going to be made and things. And they set off to building the temple in verses 2 through 10. We come down to chapter 6, verse 11, and the Lord interrupts the building process. It seems like there is a maybe a prophet, some sort of a messenger, something comes to Solomon. In verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which thou art in building, you're in the process of it, if thou wilt walk in my statutes, and execute my judgments, and keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then will I perform my word with thee, which I spake unto David thy father, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So as this is going onward, uh, Solomon is making progress. Maybe he's either getting a little bit discouraged with it, or maybe he's getting a little bit proud because of what a building project he's accomplishing. I don't know. It seems like there's something going on that the Lord needs to come and give him a reminder. Because God doesn't just do these things for no reason. There was something going on in Solomon's heart at this time, one way or the other. And God comes to him and reminds him. And he says, you're in the middle of building this house. If you will uh, walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep my commandments, then I'm going to do what I promised David. Well, what was it that he promised David? He says, if my people will follow me, then I'm going to treat them as a child and not a slave, not someone. I want to treat them as a as my son. If they sin, I'll chasten them. You know, if they are following me, I'm going to bless them, but I'm not going to forsake them. I'm not going to allow my wrath to be upon them. I'm going to nurture them as my son as long as they're walking with me. Okay, that was the promise that he had made to David. And so he is reminding Solomon, walk in my statutes. Now, remember, he's already married to Pharaoh's daughter, right? Yeah. And so he's building along. He's doing all this work and everything. And if you just turn over a little bit, 
at the end of chapter 6, at the end of the 38th verse, it says, so he was seven years in building it. So we have went from the fourth year of Solomon to the 11th year of Solomon. He was seven years in building the temple. He's been the king for 11 years now. And so the temple is built. The doors are hung. The walls and the floors are overlaid with gold. Okay. All of this has been done. And we come down to chapter 7, verse number 1. And what's the first word? But. But. If there's a but there, there's a reason. We're changing direction. Solomon's building the temple. Things are going good. It took seven years to make it. But Solomon was building his own house 13 years. You want to see a problem with that? He's building his own house when he's building the house of the boy. He started building his own house after he got done with the temple. Okay? But it took him twice as long to build his own house, and he built it twice as big. His biggest temple. Yes. If you start looking at the dimensions of it, verse number two, he built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. By the way, it's not the house in the forest of Lebanon. It says it's the house of the forest of Lebanon because he cut the forest of Lebanon down to build the house in Jerusalem. Okay. All of this wood came out of Lebanon. All the fur, all the cedar came out of Lebanon. And there was so much of the wood from Lebanon in that house. It was known as the house of the forest of Lebanon. Okay, that was that was the name of it. And so all of this would have been in the same vicinity as the temple. And so the palace of David, okay, the whole palace compound, it was composed of, uh, of the judgment hall. There was a reception room, which would have been like the, the, the huge conference room for all the parties and to bring all the dignitaries and everything. He had the throne room. He had his living chambers. He had the living chambers for his wife, the... Uh, princess of Egypt. Okay, he had these. Uh, this one room, I think it had sixty some columns in it. He had porches and colonnades, and it was. There's a description if you keep reading in chapter number seven of how intricate, how massive, how how huge this building project was. That setting beside of the temple would have dwarfed the temple. Okay. Were they next to each other? They were close. They were in the same vicinity. Okay. And so he was building his own house for 13 years, and he finished all his house. And so he also built the, the house of the forest of Lebanon. And it makes it seem like there's multiple houses, but it's multiple parts of his temple compound. Or not the temple compound, his palace compound. Okay, so he built his uh, own house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. He built the house for his Egyptian princess. He built the judgment hall. He built the reception area, he, all of these things. And it was all on compound walled in about in a similar fashion to what the temple was. Okay. And so seven years, 13 years, 20 years in building projects. Okay. And he's had these men that are laboring for him hewing the stone, cutting the trees, floating them in, hauling them across, uh, placing them where they go, building and all that kind of stuff, okay? Now, to kind of give you an idea of what's going on, and I, I, I hope this is helpful and not just academic, okay? But whenever it says that he was seven years in building the temple, that didn't include all the fixtures inside. 
Because as we continue reading uh, verse number 13 of chapter 7, and King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. Now this wasn't King Hiram. This is Hiram who is, uh, verse number 14, he was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker with brass, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all the works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all of his work. So the temple's built. He's starting to build his house, and he brings this man out of Tyre that is a skilled laborer that is going to do all of the decorative work. He's going to be making the the brass pillars for the front of the temple. He's going to be making the candlesticks. He's going to be making the uh, the table of showbread. He's going to be making the uh, all of the utensils and the altar and the all of these basins for the priests to walk. There's a ton of stuff that's being, well, not just a ton, there's tons and tons and tons of stuff that he is going to be doing. And he takes it out and he's casting it in the ground in like the, Mm -hmm. in the clay, in the plains outside of Jerusalem. And so he's a skilled artisan, he's working. And so during the 13 years that Solomon has everyone building his house, this guy's working along building the implements and making uh, intricately carved things out of brass to go in the temple. So we usually think that, okay, the temple is done in seven years. Everything's ready. It's operational. No, it's still through this 13 years that he's building his house that all these other things are going into the temple. Okay? And the reason I say all that is whenever we come to uh, chapter number 8, Hiram of Tyre has made all these implements. They get the last things in there. And the last thing that they're going to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant from the tent that David had uh, pitched it in and bring it into the Holy of Holies in the new temple. And now the temple is ready for dedication at about 20 years. Okay, so Solomon has now been king for 24 years at the time of the dedication of the temple. We don't usually think of it in those terms, do we? So now Solomon is somewhere around 45 plus years old. And he's had 20 years, 24 years, and it's been a busy 24 years. And he's been building his house. He's been building the temple. He's been overseeing all of these works and everything. And we come to the end of all of this. In chapter number 8, it says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And so they all assembled themselves together for this procession from the the city of David, which is a portion of Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. up to this mountain, Mount Moriah, the uh, the mount that the temple is being built on. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a procession carrying the ark from there to there, putting it in the Holy of Holies. And then Solomon is going to dedicate the temple. Mm -hmm. Okay. Verse number 10 of chapter 8. And it came to pass that when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the, cloud, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure and point this out. Solomon and the people of Israel witnessed the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud of God come and fill Solomon's temple. Mm-hmm. Okay? We usually think about that being, you know, the pillar of cloud that uh, led the people of Israel in the wilderness and things. But... We forget that the this cloud also came and descended down on the tabernacle whenever it was built, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And for a long time, it abode on the tabernacle, 
And then there was a point in time where the glory went away from it because the people went away from God. And now at this time in this dedication, it's a high point in Israel's history because of the work that David had did leading them spiritually, because of what Solomon has been doing. They've been watching this temple and building and seeing the magnificence of it. You know, could you imagine living in Jerusalem and watching this temple being built and all the silver and the gold, tons and tons. There was something like um, 4,000 tons of gold. I think 60-some thousand tons of silver that went into it. That's a lot. And the brass without number. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm going to answer this, but is there any of that stuff still out there today. Mm-hmm. As far as what Solomon then was yeah. No. Okay. Because with it being um, with all the successive uh, battles and things that go on throughout the kings mm-hmm. and the enemies coming in and all yeah. of that uh, it's destroyed. Mm-hmm. But whenever the king of Babylon carries away the people into mm-hmm. uh, into Egypt. No, not into Egypt. Into Babylon. Right. <laughs> into Babylon. I'm trying to think a step ahead. When he carried them away into Babylon, he carried the items from the temple away to Babylon. And you can remember the, the guy that was drinking, Belshazzar, I think, was drinking out of the vessels from the temple. Yes, yes. Okay. And so God put them in the treasury of the king of Babylon mm-hmm. to guard those vessels and whenever they came back from captivity, they brought the vessels back with them and put in the new temple. Okay. okay? Whenever they built the temple in Ezra, okay. and whenever all the people were weeping because right. they remembered the the splendor of Solomon's temple, right. and this one paled in comparison. Right. But they brought those things back. But then you had another 400 years until the time of Christ. Right. Okay, and in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple, and Jesus had said that uh, one stone wouldn't be left upon another. And so, in or amongst the Romans, there was a a rumor that went around that said that the Jews had hidden gold between the the stones of the temple. And so, whenever they destroyed the temple, they broke apart every rock looking for the hidden gold, so that there wasn't one stone left stuck to the other completely destroyed and anything of value was stripped and taken away. And so from that time onward, none of these things would have had a chance of uh, lasting past that. So at Jesus' time, some of these things that Solomon dedicated may have still been around, but not after 70 AD. Okay. So like the candlestick and stuff like that, have actually been? It may have been at that time, I don't know about the intervening right. things that happened. I mean, I know the temple was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. It was cleaned up by the Maccabees, things like that. But I don't know if it, it's possible that some of that stuff could have still been in existence. It's also possible it had been enough time, things were away. It could have been redone. Right. Uh, because the temple at the time of Christ was a work in progress they were still beautifying the temple and it was called Herod's temple because Herod was pouring money into the temple mm-hmm. to buy the love of the Jews, basically. And so whenever the disciples are looking at the temple in Jesus' day and they're pointing out the 
the the beauty of the temple and Jesus says not one stone will be left on another mm-hmm. if they were still building on it then yeah okay but um going back to Solomon here uh the glory of God came down into the temple filled the temple and Solomon saw this with his own two eyes he saw the glory of God the glory cloud of God himself the reason i'm stressing this is Solomon has heard from God already. He has all the instruction from David. He has seen God work mightily. You know, God came to him in the dream. God came to him and warned him there in the passage I read a few minutes ago. He's going to come to him again uh, up in chapter number 10, I think it is. And he's going to appear to all of the people in this cloud. And Solomon is still going to turn away from God. I can't wrap my brain around that. You know, we think in our own lives, you know, if there was something more tangible, there's times whenever God seems far away, it seems like, okay, well, we have doubts, we have uh, questions, all these different things. And it's if if God could just appear, if I could just see a miracle, if mm-hmm. something would just happen, yeah. then I would never doubt again. Right. And Solomon had all of this, and he still turned away from God. Mm-hmm. Judas. Right walked with Jesus, was empowered by Jesus to perform miracles, saw him himself, and he still turned. So that's crazy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, coming back to this, uh, Solomon follows this up in chapter 8, verse 12. And I want to read just a little bit of this. It says, Then then spake Solomon, the, the Lord that, excuse me, I want to read this. I hope I can. Then spake Solomon, the Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee a house to dwell in, a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it, saying, Since the days that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the, the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, Thou didst well that it was in thy heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son that shall come forth out of thy loins, uh, he shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake. And I am risen up in the room of David my father, and set in the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark, wherein is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. The reason I brought, or the reason I, I read all of this is to get an idea of Solomon's understanding. Mm-hmm. Solomon is preaching to the people. He is telling them God has done all of this. He's giving God the glory. He says David wanted to build this. God says, you're not going to, but your son's going to. And standing before you here today, God has done just what he said. He put me on the throne. He gave me the ability. And now here's the temple before us today. God has kept his word. Mm -hmm. That is Solomon's message to them. 
And so the rest of the chapter here, I would like to read it, but I can't for sake of time. But the rest of the chapter is Solomon praying to God. Okay, it is a beautiful prayer and it is showing. Remember how we talked about that Solomon or the kings, Solomon included, was supposed to write down a copy of the law of God with their own hand and they were to read it daily. And if we read through his prayer, it contains Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Okay, not the full text of it, but the things that are contained in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And specifically, uh, if you look at it, um, I had it written here somewhere. But, uh, specifically, uh, Deuteronomy 31 through 15, whenever you start looking at his prayer, because God says, if my people, which is called by my name, remember that whole part? That's not Deuteronomy 30, but... but but anyway, uh, in 28 through 30, it is the blessings and curses. Remember, they stood on the mountains, Ebal and Gerizim, I think, and made the, the, the blessings and curses. Solomon, in his prayer to God, is recalling those promises that God has made and basically holding God to them. And so as he's going down through and uh, praying this prayer, he says, I have built this temple. It, we know it doesn't contain you. You're the God of... Uh, all creation and all of creation can't contain you, but this is a symbol of you for our people here. So if the people sin against you and they turn to this place and they they confess their sins and they ask for forgiveness, we pray that you will forgive them. Okay? Well, the first thing he says is that you would listen to their prayers, that you would forgive them whenever they fail, that you deliver them whenever they are carried away, that you supply the needs whenever things get uh, whenever things get tight. In times of famine, in times of drought, if they will turn to you to this place and they would pray to you that you will provide for them, that you will give them the things that they're needing. Mm-hmm. And so over and over, it's the idea of faith. Okay, he's not saying based on their goodness, he's saying they're going to sin, they're going to mess up, they're going to get judged, they're going to get carried away. But when they turn back to you, confess their sins and seek your assistance, your forgiveness, your help, that you will hear and you will respond. Mm -hmm. So it's the idea of them realizing they have sinned and asking God to do something about it. Okay. And so supply their needs to relieve them whenever the things are difficult, to protect them whenever they're in battle, verse 44. And so we come down to verse 46 of uh, chapter 8. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou beest angry with them, and deliver them into the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they were carried away captives, and repent... And make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captive, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely. We have committed wickedness. And so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou givest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven thy dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive thy people. Okay? This shines a little bit, a little bit of light on Daniel. Remember how the the 
edict from the king went out that no one was to pray to anyone besides him, and Daniel prayed facing Jerusalem. It was because of this, because Solomon said, if they will turn themselves toward this city, toward this place, and pray to you, hear them, forgive them, deliver them. That's what Daniel was doing. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so he's saying, we know we're not worthy. We know we're going to mess up. We know that you're going to have to deal with us and punish us. Don't forget us. Don't cast us away. When we finally get our bearings back, when we finally turn to you, hear us, forgive us, deliver us. And this is coming from Solomon. And so it's a wonderful prayer. It is beautiful how he is laying this out. He's basically preaching the gospel in his prayer, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the same Solomon that turns his back on God. Mm -hmm. And so he is walking at a high point here. Yes, he has uh, made affinity with the nations around him. He has married multiple women by this time. He has made his house twice as big, built up for twice as long. But at this time of dedication, he is still maybe empowered by the Holy Spirit to pray such a prayer. Okay? Because God can use dirty vessels. God can use uh, imperfect people because that's the only kind there is. And so he uses Solomon at this time to preach this to the people, to pray this for the people. And so verse 54 and following, he blesses the people, sends them away. And uh, in his blessing here, verse 60, he says that all of the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Let your heart, therefore, be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. So as Solomon is blessing the people, he says, you are a light to this world. You are a testimony to all of the people who don't know God, that through the nation of Israel, the rest of the world may know God. Mm -hmm. That was God's plan. They weren't supposed to hold themselves up and say, God loves us and hates you. It's God loves us and is good to, you, to us, and we want to have you share in that. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so he tells the people of Israel, let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord God. This is his instruction to the people, and he doesn't practice what he preaches. Right? So anyway, they have this big festival. The last two weeks, he sends them away. And that brings us to chapter 9, and we're going to have to close. I wanted to go a little bit further, but we'll have to close here in just a minute. But in chapter 9, God appears to Solomon again. Okay? And it says that it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And then we come down to verse 4. And if. This is a reminder to Solomon another time. You remember even before God had come to Solomon, David's final words to Solomon was serve God, keep his commandments, walk righteously and justly, right? The Lord came to him, told him likewise, be righteous, follow my precepts, my principles, right? Mm -hmm. He says, you'll have a long life if you do so. 
And now he says, if thou will walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever. So there was an if, I will establish your kingdom, I will establish your throne. Was this throne established? He didn't meet the qualification, right? The condition. I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel, but if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among the people. And at this house which is high, everyone that passeth by it shall be astonished, and shall hiss, and they shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto the land and to this house? And they shall answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. And so God warns him, if you will follow me, if you'll keep my precepts, I will bless you. I'll bless this land. You'll continue to reign and the people will flourish. But if you don't, I will disinherit your, your lineage, basically. I will take this people from this land, put them in another land, and I will flatten this house. And everyone that comes through is going to say, why was this place destroyed? And it'll be because they forsook their God. And so he warns Solomon over and over and over. And remember, I said, God doesn't come and speak to them for nothing. So why does God come and tell him this again? I believe it's because Solomon's heart was drifting from God. He has built this great palace and everything that he's building, build more, build more. You start reading, he builds Milo, he builds an armory, he uh, builds 500 golden shields, okay? And puts them on display in his palace so that everyone that he's entertaining sees his golden shield. Golden shields are worthless for protection. They're just there for pretty because gold is a soft metal. And so it's not good for battles. First time a sword hits it, it's done. And it's heavy, yes. So it's worthless for that. So it's just there for pride. It's there for him to say, look at how great I am. And so whenever, I hate that we're out of time. Because, well, I've just stepped in something here as well. But anyway, I said at the outset of this that the kind of the theme looking at all of this is never enough, right? Now we don't have enough time. But anyway, if we were to continue in chapter number 10, well, the last half of chapter 9, it talks about all of the wealth, all of the things that he was bringing about. I've, I've got to finish out chapter 9. Picking up from where the Lord warns him here in verse number 10, it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees and with gold, according to all of his desire, 
that the king Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Okay. The reason I said I have to finish it, I've got to look at this, okay? Solomon had inherited from David an abundance of resources, okay, for building the temple, okay? He also had an abundance that was given from the people of Israel to build the temple. He also had great wealth of his own that he could have put in building the temple, but he was building his own house too. And so he ended up having to take out a loan. That's what we're looking at here at the, this next part of chapter number nine, that the king of Hiram, or king, king of Tyre, Hiram, that Hiram gave him all of these things and took 20 cities as collateral. Solomon is giving away God's land to receive wealth to build his house because he had enough to build the temple. Yeah. Okay? You see the thing of never enough? <laughs> and so he didn't have enough, even though he was so wealthy and so well-connected, he was so focused on building such a splendid palace for himself to bring uh, such admiration to himself that he gives away 20 cities of God's land to hire or to, to Tyre, Hiram, king of Tyre. And like I said, it's as collateral because he find, he pays his debt back to Hiram and gets it back. You read about that in Second Chronicles, and he restores and rebuilds these cities that he gave to Hiram. But whenever he's dealing with Hiram, he is dependent on Hiram for 20 years. He is now getting more stuff from him says that he he got the cedar trees, fir trees, and gold. Mm -hmm. And verse 12, Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. And he said, uh, What cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? And he called them uh, the land of Kabul unto this day, which the word Kabul means nothing, worthless. So Hiram comes out and he says, the these cities that you gave me in exchange for the stuff that I gave you are not equal value. Your collateral is not worth what I have loaned you. And he names the cities worthless. And so anyway, and Hiram sent the king six score talents of gold. So six score, 120 talents of gold. That's a lot of gold. Okay. Talents, yeah. Yeah, tons and tons of gold. Okay. But giving 20 cities to pay for it. Okay. And verse 15, and this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised for to build the house of the Lord and his own house and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. For Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city and gave it for a present unto his daughter Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer and Bethor in the nether and all these other places. So Solomon is building, 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 borrowing, building, right? Giving away God's land, getting money, paying back off, getting it back. He's, he's using wisdom, but not God's wisdom. 
He is making himself a name, but God's not making him a name. He's making himself wealthy through all this, but he's not trusting in God to bring the wealth. And so he does all of these things. He, he makes some bad business deals with his business partner there, Hiram. He starts playing with God's property, with God's land for his own desires, for his own pleasures here. And I've got to quit there. I would like to go into this into chapter 10, but we just don't have time. But chapter 10 is kind of the exclamation point at the end of it. So does anyone have any questions or comments? We'll wrap it up there. Probably chapter 10 in Ecclesiastes next week. I know we covered a lot of ground today. We went from chapter 5 to chapter 10. But what we see from all of this is God blesses us with great abilities, great resources. We have a choice what we use them for. Do we use them for God? Do we use them for self? And if we are using them for self, we're never going to be satisfied. If we use them for God, God will provide everything that we need. He will take care of us. And so this kind of goes along with our our message from Sunday about being a steward. Solomon was a poor steward of the things that God had given him. And he had the opportunity through with what God had given him to be to make Israel a beacon, a lighthouse to that entire region, showing them the God of Israel, putting him on full display and drawing all of these people to God. But instead, everyone was coming to Solomon to see his talent, to see his wisdom, to see all of the stuff that he's building, to see all of his wealth, to hear what he has to say. And Solomon's there giving his wisdom in Proverbs and talking about trees and animals and plants and not talking about his God. And so that's what Solomon ends up using God's blessings for. Rather than bringing people to God, he uses them to bring people to himself and to glorify himself, to enrich himself. And it's not long after this, and I think it's through all the multiplying of wealth and the connecting with these other dignitaries that are coming and viewing all of his splendor, and they're offering up their daughters, and he's getting all of these wives and they're bringing all their gods. And Solomon goes from starting off his reign, building a temple for God, to really finishing out his reign, building temples for false gods. Mm-hmm. What a long way to fall, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, okay. that's I think this, I'm struggling to connect Solomon some, some different ways, and I'm connecting him with other different ways. In, for an example, when he asked for, uh, not ask, God asked him what would he like mm-hmm. him to get from God and he asked wisdom. So God said, okay, I'll give you wisdom. Mm-hmm. So God gave him wisdom, but as we, we learn, it seems like the wisdom we receive from God and what we can um See from him, mm-hmm. there's two parts which, which I'm struggling to, to understand. There's part where this wisdom, he uses it mm-hmm. to benefit himself. Mm-hmm. For an example, 
I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. He went out of God's wisdom, marrying women's, connecting his business connection to, to benefit maybe himself or children mm -hmm. of Israel at the time. To me, it seems like, yes, there's still wisdom of God, mm -hmm. but he's using it in the way to benefit himself. Mm -hmm. But when it comes difficult for me to connect him with God again, Mm. All these things that he has done to benefit himself, at the end, there's temple involved, which was promise of God as well. Mm -hmm. At the end, it brings God's glory. Mm -hmm. So the, the, it's not the question, it's just the struggle of us as mm. human trying to connect with myself, mm. trying to connect with him. It's like he, asked, he was asked by God. Mm what to be given. He was given what he asked uh, what mm -hmm. he, he asked for. And he used it in the same way where you will just think this is for human waste. Okay. Well let me I think I can clarify. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because where the confusion is coming in is it's not that he got the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God it's like okay he's thinking and doing things as God would. Well, yeah. No. He got wisdom from God, okay? So what he prayed to God for, he says, I want to be able to have wisdom to judge people. I want to have wisdom to be able to lead these people. I want to have a political type of wisdom, a world type of wisdom to be able to rightly lead these people, okay? And so it wasn't, okay, God is giving him like the mind of God, the wisdom of God in that way. So he's looking at it, from God's perspective, he's giving him uh, wisdom to know how the world works, basically. Mm -hmm. And so he has the wisdom of how things work. Now, what are you going to do with the wisdom? So he says, OK, I know that if I do this, then I can leverage it for my benefit and bring about this. OK. Mm. And so that's the way it's not the wisdom of God. It's wisdom from God. God said, OK, I'm going to let you in on how the world works. What are you going to do with this, this knowledge? And he's, he says, okay, well, since I understand how the world works, since I have the wisdom of uh, man's, uh, man's psychology, the way that man works and the way that politics works, then I know that I can broker this deal with Hiram and I can give him these properties and I can get this and it's going to bring me about a uh, a return on investment. I'm going to get wealthier from this. And if I marry this one and that one and that one, then I've got allegiances with these lands and it blocks off this guy over here that is an enemy. And if we are bonded together, there's no way he can overthrow me. And it's it's worldly wisdom. Mm -hmm. It's knowing how how to play the game, if you will. And now the question raises on your explanation. If, okay, that is the, the, the teaching of other religions or whatever other dominations. Mm -hmm. If that's the wisdom you, you explain, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then why is Solomon being praised as being a wisdom 
ever live in this empire mm-hmm. by scriptures. Well, you go through, okay, for for example, the book of Proverbs. Mm. Okay, they're not all his Proverbs, but they're the ones he compiled. Okay. okay? And so the Proverbs, a proverb is a, like a short, pithy saying that handle, or that, that, that communicates a bit of wisdom. It mm-hmm. communicates a, a general principle, okay? Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart mm-hmm. from it. Mm-hmm. That's not a, a promise, but it's a principle. Generally, you take the time, you put the effort in, you train up the child all throughout their childhood, and you're diligent about it, there's a good chance they're going to continue onward. Okay? That's not necessarily God's... That's not necessarily God's promise. It's not His wisdom going... It's, this is the way the world works. This is the way that life happens. This is, And so these are observations about the world. This is observations about how man works and about how decisions... Uh, what results come from decisions and how to, to get ahead in life, the way that things happen. Mm. And so, yes, Proverbs is inspired by God. You know, it is uh, penned by Solomon, basically. Mm. And it is good for all of us to take in, but they aren't promises of God. They are principles letting us know how things work. And if you start looking at Proverbs, you get an understanding of what Solomon's wisdom really was. Mm. We get the wrong idea about Solomon's wisdom, like he just had a, a direct line to God's brain. That's how the religion exp- tried okay. to... Okay. That's... Okay. Why you're right there. Yeah. Okay. One thing that I thought is God gave him that wisdom and there were some conditions with it. The, the, the things that he gave with him, there were conditions with it. So, you know how back then people weren't indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. I kind of liken that situation with him with the wisdom of that of the Holy Spirit that the Lord gave that to him. The more he listened to it, the more prevalent it was in his life. Mm-hmm. But the more that he didn't listen to it and whatnot, it would be easier to go against it. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but I don't think it's accurate. Okay, well, and, so well and, the reason I, and the reason I say I don't think it's accurate is that you start reading in chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba comes, right. and she proves him with hard questions. Right. Essentially, what ends up happening whenever all of these people from the region around them, all of these other rulers and things, are coming to test and to try him, he's basically setting up there like a philosopher. Yeah. And they are asking him these questions, and he is just allowing these things to roll out. And it's not even godly things. So it's Queen of Sheba. She's not a God-fearer. She's not asking about spiritual matters. She's saying, okay, I'm a queen, and I've got these situations that are going on in my kingdom. How do I deal with this? And so Solomon, with his understanding of how politics and how the human mind works, he is saying, if you do this, then your people's going to respond this way. But if you do this, they'll respond this way. And if you uh, approach it from this angle, then you're going to get this response and so it's not a God wisdom. It's not like God showing and saying, Solomon, you need to do this. He's endued Solomon with the wisdom that he can deal with people and have an effect on people. And he can either affect them for the cause of God 
or he can affect them for his own purposes. Yeah, I don't know that we're going to fully understand yeah. because we don't have yeah, the wisdom. That's, that's the main point. There's other things that is, they just have to be God will decide one day. Right? Because if we look, if I have to look really deeply to, 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 to try to understand how that promise of wisdom God promised mm -hmm. him mm -hmm. and how it comes to light. It's, it's very difficult to connect. Mm -hmm. If you will say, no, that it, it, it wasn't that wisdom from God, it was mm -hmm. just the knowledge of him being mm -hmm. connected with all these things. Mm -hmm. But again, you, you bring the point that even just normal people from the world, they will come mm -hmm. and ask him questions about how to rule their own uh, 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 their own kingdoms, mm -hmm. and then it will align them if you do this, this can happen. So mm -hmm. it's giving them perceptions of not or what to do in order to mm -hmm. make things right, to get yeah. good results. So someone who doesn't have that much knowledge about things, even though is in, 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 in around or surrounding mm -hmm. that environment, mm -hmm. is not going to be able to answer yeah. that. So I'm, I'm I'm keen to know if really the things that Solomon was doing, even though they seem to be things of flesh, mm -hmm. how we can connect them with that promise of wisdom. Okay, let me disconnect wisdom from it and put something else in place. Because I think that'll clarify it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so God can call a man to preach. Okay. Right. And give him a gift of being able to speak compellingly, convincingly to people from the Word of God. Mm -hmm. yeah. But is the Word of God the only thing that you can use that with? The man who used to be a preacher that God has gifted with those abilities, mm -hmm. he could also take that and he could put it in the world of sales. Okay. He could also become maybe a motivational speaker. Mm -hmm. He could become a politician and debate. And use the gifts that God had given for the proclamation of God's word and evangelism. He can use it for sales and getting votes. Mm -hmm. And it's the same gift. And God meant it to be used for God's glory. But he says, okay, you have this gift. What are you going to do with it? And he says, well, you know, I want to do something that's more profitable. Preaching is not profitable. So if I go out and I use this gift for my own glory, I use this gift to go out and... Like I said, be a motivational speaker, be a salesman, be a politician, and go out and win people over and get votes and things. Well, they are using the gift of God for personal gain rather than God's glory. Yeah. It goes to the same thing as far as um, uh, singing. We talked about singing earlier. Uh, I could, well, I can't sing, but you know, <laughs> so, someone can have a voice and be able to, to be gifted and to sing well. Mm. And they can either do that to sing God's praises. Or the Satan's. And, you know, it's up to them what they do. And God gives specific gifts. And it talks about, and singing is not one of them, but uh, evangelism, prophecy, all these different things that God gifts people with, those gifts can also be used for the world, for the devil, for itself. And so he says, okay, you've got this. What are you going to do with it? And so Saul has Solomon has a wisdom, a knowledge of the workings of this world, Okay, so with your knowledge of what you're going to do, are, are you going to use it for good or evil? Uh, take it to um, fantasy land here for just a minute. Okay, 
uh, you know, in the world of uh, Marvel or superheroes and all this, a man's born with super strength. Is he going to be a hero or a villain? There's a lot of choices. Mm. Right? They have to choose. And so Solomon, basically, he has su- a superpower. Super you know, he's got super knowledge, super wisdom over here. Are you going to use it to become a hero? Or are you going to use it to become a, vi- a villain? Are you going to use it for the good of mankind? Or are you going to use it for your own gain? He used it for his own gain. And so... Everybody knows Solomon. All the surrounding nations know Solomon, but they don't know Solomon's God. All of the people of Israel uh, know that their king is wealthy and that he is rich and that he is wise and that everybody respects him. But they say, I really wish it'd be a little bit easier with the building projects because it's killing us to have to pay the taxes and have to be conscripted into the labor to build it. So does any of that make make more sense? Uh, if, if this movement still doesn't end in my head yet, too. I think that I think maybe it's just that mind you 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 have that. The hurdle is yeah. the the idea of what wisdom means in that passage. No, the idea of just even as you explain the idea of God gives you some gift. Mm-hmm. You said already God gives you a gift, mm-hmm. but depends on how you use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I'm trying to connect is that whatever you use that gift for mm-hmm. does not mean was not from God. The gift was from God, but you're the steward of it. What are you going to do with it? That, and that's, that's where I'm, I'm struggling to mm-hmm. connect David, um, Solomon with mm-hmm. all this passage of him. He was given wisdom. Mm-hmm. He used it in other way around. Mm-hmm. Is that means the gift wasn't from God? Or in other sense, does something to connect to God, it have only to be uh, to be glorifying God so that we say, okay, this is for God? I don't know if I'm trying to connect. It's like, okay, Peter asked me what you want. Give me a cup of water. You've given me a cup of water. Whatever I'm doing with that water, mm-hmm. it, it, it means it doesn't come for You didn't give me that water. Even if I, I didn't drink it, I okay. throw it out. Well, I can, I can give you a cup of water, and if instead of drinking it, you mm-hmm. take it and drown somebody. Yes. Does that mean that I didn't give it to you? Does that mean that I'm evil because I gave you the water? No. No. It, it doesn't change the gift. Yes. The difference is how you use oh, what was given. Yes. And that's the, 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 the many question that remain in mm-hmm. my mind is that God gives Solomon the gifts that he was okay. asked for. Whatever how he used it to connect it if it was to glorify God mm-hmm. or not to glorify God, to my mind is like there's facts remains he was given a gift. Yeah. Even though you use it in other way that God didn't purpose it to use it, mm-hmm. it, it there was that okay. wisdom within him. Okay, the moment I put my faith in Christ, mm-hmm. God gave me salvation. Mm-hmm. I am I'm gifted. 
this gift of salvation. I am renewed. I am restored to God. I am reconciled to Christ. What am I going to do with my life? Mm-hmm. And many Christians today take that gift of salvation and live the rest of their life for themselves as if they never received it to begin with. Right? And then at the end of their life, though they had salvation, they had the opportunity to be used greatly of God, to win souls to Him, to lay up riches in heaven, to do all. They spend their entire life for themselves. They get to the end of their life. They have sent no treasures ahead to heaven for them. They die and they go to eternity with salvation, but they have not used it whatsoever for the glory of God or for His kingdom. It doesn't take away the fact that they were saved. It doesn't take away the gift that God gave them, but they didn't use it to its potential. So Solomon received this gift, but what did he do with it? Did he use it for the way that God intended? And that might be what we get hung up on a little bit because we don't know what God could have done with him. Right. And we know the rest of the story. Yeah, we know, Sol- know, we know what Solomon did with it, but if he would have sought to please God and do what God would have him to do, what would have happened as a result of his time as a king? Well, we already talked, he probably would have lived longer. Yeah. On top of that, uh, he would have had a different relationship with all of the surrounding nations around him. Okay. And different from the one that- different from what he had because it was based on materialism and political expedience and all this. And he could have had a spiritual effect on them through wisdom. And he could have used that. Yeah. He could have used that wisdom uh, to uh, promote God instead of to profit from. And so he could have seen the nation of Israel impact all the nations around. And many of those pagan people come to God and worship him and he could have uh, solidified the people of Israel's um, love and their um, their zeal, for lack of better terms, to God, so that for generations following, he would have godly uh, heirs. He would have a godly nation. They would be making an impact on the entire region around him, and it could have changed the course of human history. if he would have used it to glorify God and to impact people for God rather than to enrich him and make a name for himself. Now, yeah, we'll go forward and see what brings, but now there's another question that comes, <laughs> okay, if he could have used, as you, you explain, so we need to know, okay, I need to know, I'm sorry, I need to know, what that Solomon didn't do right that impacted Israel at the time? What the effects or in other terms, what 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 the problem I don't know lack of the word what the what the problem they face mm-hmm. because of misused of is 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 okay. Well the simple answer to that mm-hmm is the rest of the book of 2 Kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if you look at it, okay, because, because Solomon turned away from God, mm-hmm. led the people into idolatry, built temples to false gods, uh, brought in pagan influences, 
turned away from God, God brought judgment upon him and said, uh, I'm going to take the kingdom from your lineage and only only Judah and Benjamin is going to, is Judah, yeah, Judah and Benjamin, I think, is going to remain ruled by an heir of David. Okay? And then you're going to have a wicked son and Jeroboam is going to be even more wicked. There's going to be a false religion that starts in the northern kingdom from Jeroboam with these idle cows. You're going to have all these wicked kings that follow and the the battle back and forth between the northern and southern kingdom and all this junk going on when instead they could have had a a very godly impact on the nation around and passed on a goodly heritage onward, onward, onward instead of a wicked heritage. Yeah. And so... We could actually carry this all the way out to the time of Christ. Yeah. There was... And this is really stretching, okay? <laughs> this is in what-if land, yeah. okay? But if he would have used that wisdom, brought about impact that rich generations for 400 years, okay? Well, it'd actually be, you know, just a little over 300 years. Through this kingdom age and whatnot. Well, you got anyway, you've got a good bit of time from here. Mm. But if it would have stretched forward and the impact would have kept growing, there could have been a very godly sector, a very you you could have skipped the captivity. Yeah. There wouldn't have been Assyria, there wouldn't have been Babylon. Yeah. They could have existed, had a godly sort all the way up to the days of Christ, and whenever Jesus came, they could have accepted him as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Instead of crucifying him, and it would have ushered it into the millennium. And skip the church age. But that's really what if land, because you get it in the Old Testament. God foresaw that all these things was going to happen, and he said that they were going to reject him, and he was going to be crucified. But he, Jesus came and offered himself up, and they rejected him. There is the possibility if uh, several things would have happened differently, mm-hmm. they would have accepted him. Mm-hmm. And, the, That's very interesting. and That's a big conversation. that is a yeah, huge conversation, and I know it's already late. It's a huge conversation because it seems like if Solomon didn't make those uh, uh, judgment, uh, those decisions of him, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, possibility we will not get salvation. Well, the Jews would have accepted their yeah, Messiah, and there would have been Messiah, and then go through church age, and then there was no need of mm-hmm. gospel going around mm-hmm. for Gentiles. So I don't know. It's just the Jews would have been a testimony to the world instead yeah. of instead of the Gentiles, they basically did. instead of the church. So but said, but that is a huge if, and it didn't happen. Right. So that's all in the land of make believe, really. But um, yeah. but it does have a huge lesson for us that we have no idea the amount of influence that our lives can have if we submit to God. Uh, The preacher D.L. Moody, I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, but he says the world has never seen what God can do with a man fully surrendered to him. He said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. Okay? And D.L. Moody made a huge impact on Christianity in America, and even he traveled into Europe as well, and he preached great revivals and thousands and thousands of people getting saved. 
And it was just the idea of, I want to surrender my life, let God use it however he wants. And God did use it. And I think that God uses us in proportion to what we submit to him. It comes back to stewardship. The more I'm willing to trust and follow him, the more he's willing to use and to trust us with. So, big conversation, but we bet we better wrap it up. So, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we just thank you for all that you do for us. And we thank you for this time that we've had. It's been good conversation. And Lord, we just pray, ask you that you would uh, be with us, help us to grow in our knowledge and our walk with you. Help us, Lord, to use the gifts that you have given us for your glory. Help us to use them in the way that you would have us to, Lord, rather than selfishly. And Lord, we just thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us. And all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.